Gentlemen, and welcome to our Tuesday edition of Politics, Politics, Politics for the spoopiest month of the year, October 1st, 2019. And man, we got a lot going on here. <laughs> Guys, uh, uh, it is it is definitely a creepy, crawly kind of season. We have the latest on impeachment. We got some fundraising numbers. The fundraising quarter is over and uh, a big, big, big numbers from a couple candidates. Dr. Bird's here. A little bit later on in the podcast, we have a great interview about lobbying. What's real? What's not? What are misconceptions? Exactly how much money runs through lobbying? And we get a little bit of our, our, our power rankings on who's doing well and who's not so well in that world. But first... Women, the 2020 race has the most female candidates in U.S. history. How did that feel? You know, I, I have to say it feels great. When I ran, there were more women in space than women running for president, right? There were two. And, were two. Uh, and okay. now we have, we've had enough women to field a basketball. Uh, team. I mean, it's okay, really yeah. a big step forward. Yeah. I think I think Elizabeth Warren can dunk too. Ah, <laughs> uh, that laugh, that immediate placement of herself in history—it's none other than the Hill Dog. Where are my Hill Dogs at? Oh, 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 oh. Yeah, the Hillary is running truthers ran wild last night as she made her appearance on the Colbert Report. A report? No, not no, not the report, just the late show. Her and Chelsea have a new book out. And so they're talking about it. Uh Hillary Clinton also discussed uh you know some of the impeachment stuff, specifically what happened with Secretary of State Pompeo. This is the news yesterday that he was on the Ukraine call. There continues to be a percolating of exactly who's going to be subpoenaed and who won't. Uh, Rudy Giuliani has been subpoenaed. He says that he uh, uh, will will take it under due consideration whether or not it violates attorney-client privilege. There seems to be a widening element of this. Uh, But to be honest, I I think we we do have to kind of take a wait-and-see approach on two levels. Number one, we have to wait and see as to whether or not this is going to be something that will move the needle in terms of polling. Public opinion polls, uh, uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, appeal within the Republican Party is a very important thing to watch if you want him to be removed because he would need to take a header in that category if that were to be an option. But otherwise... Really, the more that there is new news on this, the more there is a gilded path toward a vote to impeach. 
the less new news on this, the harder that will be. You'll start to have second doubts from the Democrats, specifically vulnerable Democrats. So the fact that there has been more little trails of breadcrumbs, you know, that's, that, is, that is a good. That is a good sign for the Democrats. That is a bad sign for Trump. We're also beginning to see Trump's strategy on this, which unsurprisingly is not to close ranks and appeal to the reasonable, which is what Clinton's was, to just uh, impeach. What? Impeachment? Impeachment? What are you talking about? Impeachment. Get the hell out of here. I'm trying to govern. You know, you've seen hints of that with Trump, but he's not disciplined enough to do it. You know, if Trump really wanted to, really wanted to turn the screws, he would say, well, how much do you care about impeachment? Because I'm ready to make meaningful gun control legislation. I'm ready to give y'all a little bit of something on gun control right now. So either you can go ahead and look all these people in the eye that you've been raising money off of, talking about how gun control is the number one issue, or you can come to my desk right now and sign something. See, that would have been the kind of Clintonian way to do it, is to make everybody sweat on some level. Or either make your partisanship the number one thing. Now, Trump's position, in my opinion, is that he believes that his base understands that the Democrats are bloodthirsty radicals who need him out of office no matter what. And I don't think that he's wrong on that. I think that his core base will do that. And as we get closer to the election, that and, and people are now making binary decisions, that that's something that will be seen for Republican-likely voters. And also now, the longer this goes, he can blame it on uh, impeachment. Uh, he can blame China on impeachment. He can blame... The economy on impeachment. I mean, we got miles to go until, I mean, we're not even a year away from the election. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right, let's go ahead and get into these fundraising numbers real quick. This is the Q3 fundraising deadline that just passed last night. So end of September is the end of the Q3 deadline. The formal announcements happen in about two weeks. But if you've got big boy numbers and then very often you like to announce what you will be reporting to the FEC ASAP. And we got a big boy on the block and his name is Bernie Sanders. Oh, I've been calling this man the giving tree saying he's fattening himself up so we can give himself to Elizabeth Warren. But I got news for me. Twenty five point three million dollars, which if. That is the only one that's announced. I would suspect it's probably the number one for the quarter. This is the second time that he has had such a distinction. In Q1, he raised $20.7 million that led all comers, except for Donald Trump, who, I mean, everybody in the 2020 field. Donald Trump's still raising the uh, an insane amount of money. But the other number that was announced is Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete had $19 million. That is a tidy little haul for the insurgent candidate. Although less than his Q2 fundraising. Uh, uh, 
in uh, uh, quarter two, Mayor Pete led all candidates with 25 million. Uh, Joe Biden was second with 22. Uh, meanwhile, it was Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren both raising 19. So, look, Bernie Sanders has had a big, big, big surge here. And I believe technically he had a little bit more than Pete Buttigieg, or at least that's the claim that the Sanders campaign is making. So let's go ahead and keep an eye on all that. Of course, uh, uh, you know, we're going to see whether or not Beto's fundraising has fallen off. Curious to see whether or not uh, uh, Yang has made moves. And really, somebody else that was catching a lot of uh, a lot of momentum earlier this year, Kamala Harris, who, by the way, just shook up her campaign yesterday. Suspicions that she is now just going to live in Iowa. But we want to see how much money she's brought in as well. Big, big, big announcements to come. Of course, the official filing is October 15th, at which point we will bring back our boy, Dave Leventhal, the money man, to break down all the ins and outs. Before we get into our interview, though, I want to uh, uh, just let you guys know that we are gearing up here for the 2020 election, which uh, now has an impeachment amuse-bouche. I want to, a couple things are happening. Number one, we are close to hitting a milestone on the Patreon. Uh, uh, 1500 uh, per episode, which gives us a little bit of cash to work with. I've already pre-invested some of that into Tamar, who is the one booking all of these interviews that, that gives us an opportunity to speak with so many awesome people. But I want to do more. I want to pour more money into this. I genuinely want to make a show that not only you can be super proud of and super excited about, but also competes with any other boring ass, sit around a round table and talk about the same stuff with the same points of view, political podcasts that are out there right now. But the only way that I can make things better for you is if you tell me what you like right now and what you might like going forward. And so the way you do that is head on over right now to bit.ly slash px3 survey. Again, that is bit.ly slash px, the number three, survey. Won't take you long. The information has already been super valuable and I've already immediately put some of it into play. So head on over there. Fill that out for me right now. But why do you say we go ahead and get into our interview? Politics. My guest today is Lee Drutman. He is a senior fellow at New America and the author of The Business of America is Lobbying, which means we are in the business of talking about lobbying. Lee, welcome to the show. Hey, great to be with you. You know, it is something that uh, really, really, really gets talked about way more than it gets understood, which is always the subject that I like to talk about the most on these interviews here. So let's start at the beginning. Give me the very, very basics and origins of lobbying in American government. 
Well, lobbying probably goes back to the very beginning of American government, that there were all kinds of, of interests, uh, all kinds of business interests, probably lobbying at the very first uh, Congress. And, you know, maybe even they were lobbying their delegates to the to the Constitutional Convention. So, I mean, lobbying, you know, some some people joke that it's the oldest profession. You know, everybody everybody wants something from government, and they they you know use use the resources to try to get it. So it, it goes back to the very beginning. As long as there's something something at stake, there'll be some people asking for it. But over the years, it's become considerably more sophisticated, uh, and I think in the process, it's also become considerably more imbalanced. So what what would we define as lobbying? Like if if I walk up to a congressman and say, "Hey, I, I really think that there should be more federal subsidies for political podcasts," is that lobbying, or do we need to have some kind of donation to kind of make it what we would understand in our modern definition as lobbying? I would call it lobbying. Uh, anytime you ask a, a government representative for a specific policy outcome, is lobbying. Uh, now there are very specific definitions of what counts as lobbying under Lobbying Disclosure Act that has to do with with who you're asking, uh, the amount of time you spend doing it. Uh, I would tend to take a, a very expansive version of it. Lobbyists themselves might take a somewhat narrower version of it themselves, especially the people who decide that they don't have to register as lobbyists or often called shadow lobbyists and say, oh, what, what I'm doing is not really lobbying. It's just you know, asking for things. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that's lobbying, I think. Uh, but, you know, I take a, I take a pretty expansive view <laughs> So, all right, let me, let me ask you this, because I kind of get the sense that most people listening, and I would probably include myself in this, have most of our information of what a lobbyist does from either popular media, like Thank You for Smoking or Veep or something like that, or political messaging uh, of candidates or, or sitting uh, govern or, you know, representatives of government saying that uh, uh, my opponent takes X amount of money or, or has is in the pocket of, 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 of X, Y, and Z. What are the common misconceptions? Like if that's all we know, what are we missing? I think the common, there, there is a common misconception that lobbying involves bribery or, or exchange of money. So, uh, I think it's helpful analytically to, to separate two two broad forms of influence. Uh, one is campaign contributions, and then two is actually talking to members of Congress and asking them for to introduce a bill, to stop a bill, uh, to pressure a regulator, asking for specific outcomes. So campaign contributions are sometimes given by lobbyists, sometimes given by companies who hire lobbyists, uh, and sometimes just given by, you know, uh, people who want a candidate to win. So if you think about, and, and similarly, a lot of folks who go to Capitol Hill and talk to members of Congress or their staff uh, have not made campaign contributions, and they're lobbying on behalf of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an interest group that could be a, a good government group, it could be the nurses, it could be the farmers, it could be a labor union, although labor unions often give contributions. Uh, it could be a, co a corporation, it could be a business association. Now, 
if you think of, of the, these as a, as a Venn diagram, people who give money to candidates and people who, who lobby uh, under, under any definition, uh, there's some overlap, but there, there are some areas of non-overlap. So I think uh, that, that is one misconception. Uh, another misconception is that the only way that lobbyists have influence is by making campaign contributions, uh, which I think certainly there's, there, there's something to that story. But uh, I think the, the, the greater way that lobbyists have influence is by building personal relationships that transcend just making campaign contributions. And most importantly, by uh, making convincing arguments and shaping the way that, that members of Congress and even more importantly, their staff come to understand issues. Uh, a lot of lobbying is just argument, information, and persuasion that has nothing to do with campaign contributions. It's trying to convince lawmakers and their staff that something is the best policy or something would be good for their constituents, something would create jobs, something would be good for the economy, something would be good for America. And a lot of that just is involved with, uh, with just making a compelling case. Now, sometimes that means also paying for supportive research, uh, paying for supportive polling, building coalitions of, of different organizations who can also weigh in and support. But it's it's much more sophisticated and much more uh, complex. It's not a, you know, politics is not a vending machine. Yeah. So it's not just who gave me the most amount of money and that's what I'm going to do because I am just an automaton for corporate America. Right. And here's the thing. A, a, a lot of companies give uh, and a lot of a lot of folks give members of Congress money and get nothing in return. Or maybe they get one thing and they lose on a bunch of things. And, and often businesses are on different sides and there are uh, of of given controversies. So it's just it's just not that simple. If it were, it would be politics would be a lot less interesting. <laughs> All right. So so you mentioned that there has been a tipping point in the past where things got a lot bigger and more formal. And you use the term imbalance. Is there an inflection point in history when that happens? Uh, in my book, The Business of America is Lobbying. Uh, I, I put that inflection point in the mid 1970s. Now, up to then corporate America had not been super involved in politics and uh, lobbying had been pretty balanced between narrow corporate interests and broader public interests. Then in the 1970s, in response to a bunch of new regulatory agencies and a sense that business was losing influence in America, was turning against free enterprise and uh, businesses were getting squeezed by global competition, companies started to devote resources to politics. And once they started to devote resources to politics, they had a bunch of lobbyists who then convinced them that politics is really important because lobbyists wanted to keep their jobs. And then companies got involved in more issues and more fights and, and they had more lobbyists and it kind of just steamrolled from there. Uh, and now we have lobbying in Washington, DC, which is a $3.5 billion with a B <laughs> dollar industry in reported lobbying, and that's just reported lobbying. Most folks who, who, have, who understand the industry would say, well, that you probably at least want to double that because there's a lot of stuff that you and I, certainly I would think of as lobbying, but folks who don't register as lobbyists, and instead they are in public affairs or consulting, as well as a lot of 
think tanks that just basically do research for corporations to help them make their point before members of Congress. So would that be that that is K Street, right? That, that that's that's the the idea. That's the euphemism. The euphemism. A of, yeah, a lot of offices are on K Street, uh, but they're also throughout through throughout the the whole alphabet of of downtown DC streets at this point. I had a thought that you know maybe we could we could regulate lobbying in a different way and just like make sure that everybody had to have their offices in Maryland, you know, and just like make sure that everybody had to drive in. That maybe it would make people think twice. Uh, I, I, it's not that hard to drive into D.C. from Maryland. <laughs> uh, you know, I think I think I mean, one of the challenges is if you make it harder to lobby, uh, then it's just the folks who have more money who can overcome that. Sure. And you know, in fact, in fact my, my view is quite the opposite. That it should be easier. Uh, you, what you want to do is you want to level the playing field. Because sure. There are, there are, you know, depending on your politics. There, you know, and whatever your politics is, you'll find that there are good lobbyists and there are bad lobbyists. Uh, in that, there are good lobbyists are those that agree with you, and bad lobbyists are those that disagree with you. And and my view is the playing field ought to be level so that folks who are making policy can hear uh, arguments on all sides, can uh, have folks to play off against each other to try to get a a, a better version of the truth, and. You know, all, all as many perspectives uh, as are out there can be represented. Uh, what uh, the reality is, is that corporations of 20, 30, 40 times the, the lobbyists and the resources is those on the other side of the issue. Uh, and we have tax laws that make it hard for nonprofits to devote many of their resources to lobbying. So it winds up that folks who are making policy here disproportionately from from narrow corporate interests who have their their profits at stake and that distorts the information they get and as a result that distorts the decisions that they make. So who are the biggest players? What what are the industries that lobby the hardest by the the registered money? Well, tech has really has really uh, come up in the last few years that the biggest spenders are uh, tech companies, defense companies, pharmaceutical companies, energy companies, telecom companies. Basically, think of any industry, financial services, banking industry. Think of any industry that that is that has a lot of government regulation and yeah. oversight, and you're going to find an industry that has a lot of lobbyists in Washington D.C. The, the the tech money thing is interesting because that seems to be a big difference between like web 1.0 and web 2.0 was that, you know, one of the defining cases of web 1.0 was the Microsoft antitrust stuff where Microsoft famously did not have a lot of people in Washington. And then all the companies like Google and I mean, Apple obviously was there before, but they became much larger afterward. Uh, uh, now realize, wait a minute, we, we, we definitely want a seat at the table just in case people start sniffing around for antitrust, which now they're doing. That's right. And a lot of tech companies learn the lesson of Microsoft that if you're not at the table, then you're probably on the menu and they want to definitely be at the table. Now, one of the, the, the biggest uh, organizations that, that certainly, I think, defines how many people think about lobbying is, is the NRA. And that is uh, an organization that obviously 
is uh, uh, at the forefront of many people's minds, specifically as, I mean, at least prior to uh, full disclosure at the point that we were recording this, we are a day after the impeachment announcement. But prior to the impeachment announcement, uh, uh, gun control measures were something that people were talking a lot about. Uh, what can you tell us about, is the NRA uh, uh, outsized in its influence? Is it larger or smaller than some of the other uh, uh, corporate or, or industries that you had mentioned before? Well, the NRA is certainly one of the largest organizations in the in the lobbying space. And what's you know, a few a, a few things have made the NRA particularly powerful over the years. One is that they they just have a very large membership. So in many ways, they they've long been a textbook civics organization in that they engage a lot of people in politics. They encourage them to vote and reach out to their representatives. And and it's testament to the fact that. In politics, you can organize a relatively small minority, uh, and if they are very active and intense, they will often get what they want. But the other thing that was true about the NRA for a long time is that there was really no organization on the other side that was pressuring members of Congress to get tough on gun control. There were a few small organizations that didn't have much in terms of uh, grassroots support or, or campaign money. And the last few years, that, that balance has really changed uh, as as the Every Town for, for Gun Safety uh, organization has, has really ramped up its efforts, as well as a few other organizations like Gabby Gifford's group. Uh, and, you know, so there's now now members of Congress are feeling pressure on both sides of the issue. And I think that's really changed the politics. Uh, also, also, it used to be that, that the NRA was kind of a bipartisan organization because there are a bunch of Democrats who got elected from uh, conservative rural districts who were depending on NRA support. And now that that no longer is the case. The NRA has become a, a totally partisan organization and really just part of the Republican Party. So I think I think ultimately that will is is leading it's leading to a decline in their influence over time. But certainly they've long been one of the the, the largest and most effective organizations, and largely effective because they just have had a very dedicated membership base who puts a lot of pressure on members of Congress and distorts their sense of what public opinion is. So uh, you would say that that any kind of lobbying organization and let, let's use the NRA as the poster example if you are only catering to one party then you will always be weaker than a lobbying arm that is appealing to both yeah unfortunately that's you know that's hard to do increasingly in these times as everything's become polarized but you know the the way to get stuff done in Washington is to have broad bipartisan support now on the other hand if your goal is just to stop stuff you can you can often get by with just being uh, a Democrat or a Republican uh, focused lobbying group, but that you know makes it harder to get anything done. So uh, for a lot of companies, a lot of industries that basically want to protect the status quo and stop new regulation, that works okay. Uh, but for organizations that want to get something done affirmatively, you want to make sure that you have broad bipartisan support. So for the NRA, which mostly wants to stop new gun regulation, you know that that, that has been successful. Uh, still, though, the NRA is certainly less powerful than they used to be. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it, that was really the most fascinating part about the buildup to, uh, I guess, possible uh, uh, new gun laws that, I mean, who knows whether that'll happen now, but uh, uh, was the idea that the NRA was not what, what, what it used to be, that between internal scandals and, and the fact that things had become so polarized uh, that that maybe they were they they, they 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 were not quite the fearsome force that somebody could maybe even as a Republican get elected without a a rating from the NRA. Yeah, and I mean I also think more broadly the politics of the gun issue has changed as there have been more and more mass shootings and more and more uh, uh, folks have been affected by the by the fear of that, and if not you know directly in their community, and then just a, a sense that it could happen in their community. So uh, what you mentioned before that that your idea is to level the playing field that that would make you know that this is more about uh, uh, not gatekeeping access to your representatives but having more voices there uh, is there any pathway to that through you know uh, technology or, or or you know mandating that representatives are are in their districts more like, like are there any things that you would suggest to to kind of make that a reality? Well, I, I think it's. You know, certainly it's hard to to, res- to, to place restrictions uh, on lobbying. You know, I think uh, you know any anything that makes it easier to have more. You know, there have been various proposals about vouchers or public money for public interest lobbying groups that are certainly interesting. Uh, you know, another thing that and we'll get back to this point about information is that. Over the last, and this is, I think, where there's real opportunity. So the last 40 years, Congress has de-invested in itself, and that Congress now has fewer fewer staffers than it did 40 years ago. Uh, salaries for staffers are, are very low by Washington standards, and certainly a lot less than the folks who work in Congress would make if they uh, went downtown, to, that is, worked as a lobbyist. And this has made lobbyists, more influential and more powerful because congressional offices are uh, staffed by young, bright, energetic folks who just don't have experience. And who do they turn to to understand complex policy areas? Well, they often turn to lobbyists who used to be folks who worked in their position. So, you know, can say, hey, you know, I used to be in your position. I know what it's like. And here's uh, here. Here's how to how to how to do this. You know how, how, what you need to know in this policy area, or here's how to do that. That uh, you know authorization that comes up every five years. Yeah. By the way, how about a little something for us? <laughs> so uh, I, I think the, the probably you know certainly there are ways that that you can try to try to expand the the resources that public interest groups have to lobby. But I think perhaps the most important thing to do is just for Congress to spend more damn money on its own expertise. I mean, Congress spends about $2 billion a year, uh, you know, to, to fund the entire house and the entire Senate. And I just told you that lobbying is a $3.5 billion a year industry. And that's just reported lobbying. So, you know, there's almost twice as much money is spent on lobbying as Congress spends on itself, uh, to hire staff. And, and the result is you just, you, you know, you get some good people, energetic people, smart people, but people who don't have that depth, of experience and are covering too many issues. And as a result, a lot of knowledge is just simply outsourced to, to, to lobbyists in the private sector. So it's not surprising that overall resources, 
but their or policy making has has tilted towards uh, towards private private interests over several decades. So the best way is for Congress to just spend more damn money on itself. Ah, uh, that's fascinating. So so the idea is there's a problem, and and uh, hopefully the solution comes from within the congressman's office as opposed to a lobbyist that comes through with the best idea on how to do it that also happens to just benefit their interest. Yeah. Or, I mean, lobbyists might have some good ideas every now and then, but you want folks who can, who have the expertise and the know-how yeah. to, to, to smell what's BS and what's genuinely a good idea and to be able to tweak that and run with it. Uh, and to, you know, I mean, it's not to say that, that everything that business wants is bad or everything private industry wants is harmful, but you, know, you got to be able to know when somebody's trying to sell you a load of crap and <laughs> when somebody has, has a, a genuinely good public interest policy idea. So on the whole, it seems like you, you don't have a, a, a super cynical view on lobbying. Like this, is, this is certainly an, just an element of, of the process. We just have to be smarter about it. Yeah, look, it's politics, and and in politics, there in a, in a large, complex, diverse society, there are a lot of interests and a lot of competing uh, values, and you know, those values should have representatives that might not just be elected representatives, but might be heads of organizations uh, of citizens. Who have specific interests, and that's you know that's to me that's democracy, that's pluralism, uh, that's you know freedom of uh, freedom of expression, and you know that's valuable. You want that in policymaking. You want competing factions because that's going to force you to have better policy. But the problem is when you don't really have balance among competing factions. You have you know overwhelming resources on one side of the issue, uh, very little knowledge within government, and, and very few organizations to provide a, a, a counterweight. And then you get policy that's skewed in one direction. And more significantly, you often make it impossible to move in any other direction because it's really hard to get a bill passed through Congress. And it requires tremendous resources and building of coalitions. And, and so uh, I, I think anybody who thinks we should just get rid of lobbying is, to me, is fundamentally against what I think is a core democratic principle, uh, which is, you know, that, that, that all voices should be re represented and we should have a diversity of viewpoints uh, in, the, in the lawmaking process. Uh, to me, that's, that's core. But, you know, anybody who says, all, all is well, you know, look, everybody's represented. Uh, that's not really true because some folks have a lot more representation than others. Yeah. And folks who are making the policy uh, don't have the level of expertise that I think we would want in the, you know, supposedly the, you know, the, uh, the greatest democracy in the world, right? Are we still that? No, probably not anymore. Huh? Well, I mean, I think we're not the largest anymore. I think India took that. So oh, India, India is being India is much larger for a while. Second largest, second largest in terms of population, you know, number one in our hearts. That's what we like to say. Uh, uh, one last question here, because it's something that you hear mentioned, and uh, if, if 
I haven't checked, but I would not be shocked if it's something that's among the platforms of some of our, our Democratic primary front runners. But there have been calls to end the revolving door, the idea that you lose a congressional race and then you just go across the street to K Street and now all of a sudden you're a lobbyist probably making more money uh, uh, and, and you retain all the influence, but now you are working on behalf of corporate America. Do you think that that's a problem? Well, I wouldn't think it's a problem if you go and become a lobbyist for a, for a public interest cause. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's not great, but I, I think that's a, a, a very small piece of the problem. I think if Congress would just invest a lot more resources in its own expertise and information, those lobbyists would have a lot less influence. And frankly, a lot of them don't make very good lobbyists. To, to be honest, because, you know, they're, they're, they, companies like to hire them because they think they're influential, but, you know, the, the, they don't often make the best lobbyists. So I think it's a little, you know, it, it's hard to regulate. And, you know, look, I, I think uh, there are folks who certainly do do cash out, but, you know, I, I, I also feel like, you know, that's, 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 that's their choice. Uh, and you want to attract the best people to Congress. And, you know, if it means that some of them go and cash in and become lobbyists, uh, to me, that's, that's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is that Congress doesn't have the information and expertise to make policy without having to rely on corporate lobbyists. And that's the thing that, that I think you ought to turn your attention to if you want to solve the problem of, of corporate influence in our politics. I think so, too. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, All Lee, right. Lee, Lee Drutman has been my guest here today, a senior fellow at New America. Everybody go get his book, The Business of America is Lobbying. Is there anywhere else where we can follow your work online, Lee? Sure. You can follow me on uh, Twitter at, at Lee Drutman. Awesome. Uh, well, well, thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. This has been uh, a super, super illuminating. All right. Well, always, always a pleasure to talk about lobbying. Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>